The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. And welcome to the Urbanist Monocle 24's program all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. Standing in for Andrew Talk this week, I'm your host, Carlotta Rubello. Coming up. You kind of have these different levels of building and, and creating cities and, and structures with a sense of place that have benefits on yeah, a sustainability level, but also a level of being embraced by the local community. This week, we wanted to take a look back at the past 12 months and reflect on how cities have grown, changed and developed over the last year. We're in Los Angeles to reflect on the legacy of former mayor Eric Garcetti and look ahead to the tenure of new mayor Karen Bass. We also reflect on the impact of architecture and building with dignity as we recount some of the top projects of the year. And we turn our gaze to the Balkans to take the temperature of three different mayors and the impact they've had in their respective home cities. Plus, we're in Tokyo to unpack a year in urbanism for the region. That's all ahead over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Carlotta Rabello. So let's get started in the United States. This week saw the inauguration of Karen Bass as the new mayor of Los Angeles, the city's first female mayor and only the second black person to ever hold the office. While former Mayor Eric Garcetti's departure had been long announced, he is taking a post now as U.S. ambassador to India. We ask what legacy is he leaving behind for Angelinos and what will be Bass's priorities for her term? I'm joined now in the studio by Monocle's U.S. editor Chris Lord, who reported on this mayoral election for us earlier this year. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. You have a new mayor in your adoptive city. What are your reflections on the legacy Garcetti is leaving behind? Yeah, it's really interesting with Garcetti. I think if you speak to a lot of Angelinos, they feel that Eric Garcetti, in a way, that because it was trailed so heavily that he was leaving to take a job in India, essentially, as the ambassador, and therefore was cutting short his term, and, and therefore they needed to find another mayor. Because of that heavy trailing, I think a lot of Angelinos feel there's been a sort of vacuum of leadership for a while in Los Angeles. Certainly in the last year, what you've seen is, since Garcetti has announced that this mayoral race was going to happen and he was leaving... In a way, lots of his public presence has really been things like opening bridges and sort of public-facing stuff. The kinds of difficulties that Los Angeles faces right now are so big, and people feel that very strongly. And also, I think they feel as well that, for a certain point, Eric Garcetti sort of lost the thread of what he was trying to do there. You know, homelessness got so bad and remains such a pronounced problem, a crisis, actually, in Los Angeles 
Now, we'll come to the new mayor in a moment. And I think, you know, that mayoral race was really fought on trying to bring that problem back to some kind of control. But Galaxetti, you know, I mean, if you just look at what happened during COVID, you know, the city really struggled through that period, you know, on a very urban civic level, you know, sidewalks became encampments in many places. Also, major parts of the city, downtown Los Angeles, really became for a lot of people a no-go zone. Now, some of this stuff, truthfully, in all fairness to Garcetti, some of that stuff is starting to come back and it is starting to get a bit of a handle on it. But I think there's a feeling that because the hand went off the tiller for so long, that actually bringing that back is such a monumental task. So to your point, the legacy of him, I think, really is he set the stage now for actually that mayoral race that's just concluded was so much more charged, I think, than mayoral races usually are because there is such a profound sense of crisis on an urban level in Los Angeles. It's interesting what you mentioned there about downtown Los Angeles. I remember before COVID, it was really the hub that Garcetti and local leaders were trying to promote was move to downtown Los Angeles. It's, you know, one of the few stations is in downtown Los Angeles of the metro where you actually connect to all the lines. They were trying to make it a reality. And a lot of um, these issues that happened throughout his mayorship really have put a pause on that progress. Do you feel like it could be in the works for the new mayor or in the near future for that bounce back to happen. We were seeing a lot of hotels open, new businesses. And as you mentioned, it really became a dangerous place to go. Absolutely. You know, when you ran the bureau there in Los Angeles, you know, the arts district, which is downtown Los Angeles, you know, was the place to be. I mean, you know, Hauser and Worth had opened a huge gallery down there, museum sized space. You had so many restaurants opening. And because it's so close to now an area that in a lot of Angelino's minds is very, very dangerous and not desirable, that has struggled. However, I do believe, and I have seen definitely in the last few months, to your point about hotels opening, that is definitely happening again. Because there's so much real estate there. That's the other thing. There's so much you can do in that area. And beautiful buildings with such an amazing history of the built environment there. So to your point about it, is it coming back? I think now because the rents... (laughs) It's a very simple mechanic, really. Because the rents are cheaper there, because it's got dodgy, that has actually presented an opportunity for people with an idea and with a plan. And I can certainly see that. I mean, the Arts District is a great example of an area that was just primed to kick off in such a big way. And unfortunately, because of COVID and what happened consequently hasn't done. Now I think I can name several projects that are already underway in the Arts District, which is just sort of part of downtown Los Angeles that really is bringing that place back. So the future actually is brighter than it has seemed for a long time, I would say. Well, let's uh, look ahead and and towards a new mayor. Throughout the campaign, which you were describing was quite an intense one, what was your assessment of how her leadership for the city might look like? And what do we know are some of the top priorities on, on the list? Karen Bass, I think, is a very interesting character. I've actually been in touch with her previously when she her congressional role is as the head of the Black Congressional Caucus. So she's very involved in Washington. She knows Washington and Washington knows her. And I think that's going to be very interesting. It does elevate that post, I think, quite a lot, bringing her into that position. She, in her earlier career, was very involved in social work in Los Angeles in a period, in a period that a lot of people actually maybe overstating it slightly, but draw a parallel with a bit where we are now, where in the 1990s, when crime was such a feature of Los Angeles life, and also not just crime, but gang warfare, Karen Bass worked quite closely as a social worker during that period with 
some of those neighbourhoods that were almost the in the crossfire of those gangs. And that, I think, is sets her up very well for the kind of crises that we're tackling, this crisis that we were just talking about. Her approach to homelessness, I think, is interesting. She was also quite realistic during the campaign. So her, her opponent was Rick Caruso, who's a mall developer and a billionaire, interesting man as well. He poured so much money into that campaign, it was ridiculous. I mean, you you couldn't watch a video on YouTube without having been greeted by Rick Caruso first. And it does show that American politics, we can so often think, is is a battle of who can bring the most money to the table. And that does actually, the fact that he did lose ultimately, shows that that's not always the case. He had a very ambitious claim of, you know, really clearing the streets of people in a very, very quick period. And I think Karen Bass was much more realistic about what can be done. She's talking about, you know, yes, she's talking about raising a sort of state of alarm or emergency, if you will, to the point where you can get extra funds to tackle the issue. I sense that she also realises in all this that there also isn't really a silver bullet because, you know, the problem you have in Los Angeles is it's not like Chicago and it's not like New York. The mayor in Los Angeles has quite limited powers. You have a city council, actually, that's much more powerful. And in fact, you know, that council just in recent months has been riven with scandals where you've had two members of the council and the Latin community there in in Los Angeles, powerful people actually in this council, making derogatory statements about other communities within the city, which was a huge unravelling of that power that's there and contained within that power. And also how it revealed, if you will, private interests of individuals and trying to hedge things against other communities and so on. That's going to be, I think, a big part of what she has to tackle now, the realisation that... Angelinos will be feeling that, hey, the people who run this place are looking after their own, and that she's going to have to sort out. And I think that's going to be a big part of this. And also getting the homelessness problem sorted, that getting people housed isn't just a simple matter of you build it and they will come. It's also about where people are gathering if they don't have anywhere to live and making sure that getting that under control isn't just making the people in Santa Monica happy that it's also about other communities who do have major homelessness problems but don't get anything like the coverage because it's not on Sunset Boulevard. So that, I think, is really important. And I think she recognised that. She knows every side of Los Angeles. It was interesting to see that just on her swearing-in ceremony that she declared homelessness as a state of emergency mm. for the city, which is quite a bold statement to make immediately on you know one of your first few days as a Absolutely. mayor. And the fact as well that she's the first female mayor of Los Angeles will have some weight with citizens as well. Totally. Absolutely. And having your opening speech saying there's a state of emergency is so important because... To come back to the Garcetti thing, I think there was a feeling towards the end of his tenure that he became the sort of cheery face of Los Angeles. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a very important role that a mayor can play. You know, you show up for the ribbon ceremony, the cutting ceremonies, and you you say how great things are, and you look very Los Angeles, which he does. You know, he's a very charming individual. He's got the looks and he's got the charisma and so on. To then have the new mayor come in and say, we're in a state of emergency and we're going to get it sorted is so meaningful. And I think, I also think she's right. It is an emergency. And there is a state of emergency there right now that it has to get sorted. Because, you know, cities in the next few years towards the presidential election in 2024, cities are going to be very important. And by that, what I mean is that you've got a situation where the great lag for the Democrats now is that the Republicans can so easily say, hey, look how these guys run their cities. Look at what a mess they make of the country. It's so easy for the Republicans to say that. Because you look at Portland, you look at parts of downtown New York, 
you look at Los Angeles, also even cities like Denver that were always regarded as having a very high quality of life, the downtown has become a place that people don't want to go. This city's question is going to be the defining thing in the next couple of years because it's also about Democrats saying we can get the house in order. And I think Karen Bass, having come from that Washington world, knows very keenly that if the Democrats want to get anywhere in the next couple of years and secure a second term for Biden, then they're going to have to get the house in order when it comes to how they run cities. And I think she knows that very clearly. Monaco's US editor Chris Lord there. Thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. Next, we're in Japan as our Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson, reflects on the past year in urbanism for her home city. After the excitement of hosting the Olympic Games in 2021, even if it was mid-pandemic and delayed by a year, 2022 started off quietly in Tokyo. By October, when Japan's borders fully reopened, the city was ready to welcome back visitors, and they've returned in numbers. Nearly half a million arrived in October, double the number in September. South Koreans were the largest group, followed by Americans, with visitors from Hong Kong coming in third. The Olympics continues to cast a shadow over Tokyo as an investigation into corruption widens. The northern city of Sapporo, which had hoped to host the 2030 Winter Olympics, concedes that the scandal has probably scuppered their chances. Tokyo went dotty for artist Yayoi Kusama to celebrate her collaboration with Louis Vuitton. Installations were put up all over Tokyo, including at Zojoji Temple, Shibuya Crossing and Tokyo Tower. There's even a Yayoi Kusama-themed skating rink near Tokyo Station. It's open until Christmas Day. The Tokyo Motor Show, usually held every two years, is one of the world's biggest car events. But the 2021 outing was cancelled, along with so many other events. Next autumn, however, the show will be back at Tokyo Big Site for the first time in four years. There are plenty of other openings that will attract attention too. The digital art museum Team Lab Borderless, which held the record for the most visited museum in the world, closed this year but will reopen in 2023 in Mori Building's giant new Tyrannomon Azabudai mixed-use development. Details are still scant, but we know it will pull in huge numbers. The old Toshimaen funfair that closed in 2020 at nearly 100 years old will reopen next year as a 30,000 square metre Harry Potter world. Anime and manga fans who've been coming to the nine-storey anime flagship store in Ikebukuro to buy comics and games for decades will see a new store there. It'll celebrate its 40th anniversary with an overhaul that will make it the biggest anime shop in the world. Inexplicably, we said goodbye to the irreplaceable Nakagin capsule tower this year. The stack of self-contained capsule apartments showed how urban living could be in the future. It was designed by the late Kisho Kurokawa and completed in 1972. There have been some good additions to the city, though, not least the Nippon Foundation's Tokyo Toilet Project, which has placed public loos all over Shibuya, designed by some of the biggest names in Japanese architecture and maintained by a dedicated team of boiler-suited cleaners. It's good to know that one of the world's biggest cities still thinks it's worth striving to improve daily life for its citizens. Monaco's Fiona Wilson in Tokyo there. Our thanks.
To the Balkans now, where 2022 proved to be a year with some interesting mayoral movements, from a comeback mayor in Ljubljana to a new leader in Zagreb and even someone facing an uphill battle in Belgrade. Here's our Balkans correspondent Guy Deloni with the story. Let me tell you a tale of three cities. Three cities I know and love and where the mayors have all been elected or re-elected within the past 18 months. Let's start off in Serbia's capital, Belgrade, where the new mayor is Aleksandar Sapic. Now, he's a true national hero. He was arguably the world's best water polo player in the 1990s and 2000s. He's been involved with city politics since his retirement for more than a decade now. And these days, he's a member of the governing Progressive Party. Belgrade has considerable problems to sort out. So there's the building boom. If you go to Belgrade these days, you'll notice if you were there a few years previously that there are a lot of buildings that simply weren't there. These towers have been sprouting up all along the waterfront. Now, you'd think that might be a good thing, but this is building for the few, not the many. Housing as a commodity, the critics say, not living space. Then there's pollution. Belgrade is one of the most polluted cities in Europe. The air pollution is particularly bad, and this year the water pollution has been something to behold as well. Mayor Šapić needs to address that urgently. And the transport-clogged roads don't just mean pollution, they mean Belgraders can't get around. The metro project is finally underway, but with a route map which seems to favour new housing developments over parts of the city which actually need better transport links. End of term report could do better. Meanwhile, in Croatia's capital, Zagreb, Tomislav Tomasevic has now been in office for 18 months. That's a blink of an eye compared to the 20 years his predecessor held office. In the end, only death could stop Milan Bandic. Tomasevic was promising something very different. He's part of the green left Mojimo movement, and he promised to make the city more accountable to its people. That hasn't been easy. During his decades in power, Bandic built up a sizable patronage network which is embedded in every aspect of public administration in Zagreb. Unpicking that without causing chaos in the capital hasn't been easy. Tomasevic has been forced to compromise, keeping some old hands in office. He's also lacked a headline-grabbing project to boost his image. Yes, he reopened a Sliema cable car up Mount Medvednica after two decades of closure, but instead of claiming the credit, he described it as a waste of money. He will be tidying up the trams, though. Advertising contracts aren't being renewed, and Zagreb's public transport fleet is reclaiming its traditional powder blue livery. Hopefully, 2023 will be the year when Tomasevic stops grappling with the past and blazes a trail to the future. Then there's my home city, Ljubljana. A few weeks ago, residents re-elected Zoran Jankovic for yet another term as mayor. He's been there since 2006 and didn't have any serious challenges this time around. There's always plenty of scandal surrounding Jankovic. He's certainly no stranger to the courts. But Ljubljan Chani respect him because he gets things done. On his watch, the city centre's been transformed, traffic's been ousted, walking embraced, and riversides revived. But there's a feeling of, what have you done for me lately? Cycling lobbyists say the mayor should do more to make life on two wheels 
the default choice. And when you see the traffic congestion, you can understand why. Housing is low in quality and high in price, meaning many young people can't leave home. More public housing is desperately needed. And public transport is still a struggle, with the national railways not integrated with Ljubljana's public transport system. One thing that should be happening next year, though, is that Slovenian Railway's new, fairly high-speed flirt trains should start running on the route to Zagreb. Now, if only they could sort out the Zagreb-Belgrade link as well. For Monocle, in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay there. And finally this week, we wanted to reflect on the built environment per se and how architects have shaped cities in 2022. Monocle's own design editor, Nick Manis, joins me in the studio now. Welcome to The Urbanist, Nick. What are some of the highlights of the year gone by for you? Well, I think for me, the way I'd, I'd like to do this, Carlotta, if it's permissible, is almost to frame it through some big interviews and big stories we've had on Monocle on Design, but also in the magazine itself. So in early 2022, we sent Ed Stocker, our, our lovely Europe editor-at-large, to Accra in Ghana to, I guess, look at the development of the architecture scene there. And, and, he, and he spoke to David Ajay and he, and he made a lovely piece for Monocle on Design on, on that discussion, off the back of that discussion. And Ajay was basically, you know, this you know, world-renowned, very, very famous architect who's working on a number of different projects in Ghana. So he's, he's working on the National Cathedral, uh, he's designing more than 100 hospitals for the Ministry of Health, and then also working on a, a grand coastal promenade in the capital city of Accra. And what he said to Ed and what came across in the piece was he was talking about the fact that he wasn't willing and, and neither, I guess, people or, or people commissioning architects in Ghana, they weren't willing to wait for, I guess, architecture and development, urban development to catch up with them. They're, they're, he said there's no rules that say you have to build roads first and then houses and then high-rise buildings. And and the point that he was trying to make was that there's no right time or right place to build well. It's, it's just an outlook that should always be a given. And the reason I bring this up is it's almost like it set the benchmark for all these other projects that we sort of picked up over the course of the year. And this just seemed to be a trend where where it was like not about waiting for the right time to build or, you know, doing something in a particular order. It's like, no, it doesn't matter the context that this is being delivered in. It doesn't matter the qualities of the buildings around it. We're just going to make something that's amazing and, and really high quality, regardless of the budget as well. Do you feel like that has been a trend throughout the year across other regions as well? Certainly. I mean, as well, if you look at the work of... Francis Kere, we can, you know, he won the Pritzker Prize this year, this amazing architect who builds incredible civic structures for cities across Africa and, and, and in Europe as well. And his work in much the same vein is, and I think he, actually in his acceptance speech for the Pritzker, he said, you know, you've always got to deliver quality, you've always got to deliver luxury, and you've always got to deliver comfort. And it doesn't matter where that's happening. The, the expectation is that that is what you're going to deliver. So it was funny that, you know, this sort of similar threads almost mentioned by Ajay and then the Pritzker Prize Awards, you know, carry an award for his body of work, which is all about essentially doing the same thing that he talked about. But then we could also, you know, we could jump to the Serpentine Pavilion. We're talking these high-profile projects that really you know, draw people's attention, capture people's attention, that help to set the agenda for architecture and design in cities. We look at these projects and, yeah, again, the Serpentine is a very similar thing. It's community-minded architect who is all about delivering and building with dignity for people regardless of where they are. So Theaster Gates is based in Chicago. He hasn't felt the need to leave Chicago. He, he's really committed to doing up his south side neighbourhood and it was an ethos he, he sort of reflected when he came and, and worked over here. It was all about connecting with the community, working with people and, and making a pavilion that is reflective of, of that outlook. 
Well, and it's interesting, the example there of Chicago, actually, because it is a city where, in terms of urbanism, they're doing quite interesting projects in really trying to transform the city core. And one of the conversations that, of course, we've picked up over the past 12 months and will continue in 2023 is, you know, how urbanization is changing and what does the future of city life look like? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, because... There's still conversation about, you know, the return to the office in certain parts of the world. Uh, We are seeing department stores shut down uh, because the high streets are not bouncing back. Do you sense a shift in that sense in terms of um, how cities will look going forward or, you know, ebbs and flows and it will come back? I think there's an expectation now in terms of quality. People aren't going to settle for less. I imagine some of the people that aren't coming back to their offices were working in quite depressing places, you know, and there's an expectation that, okay, if I'm going to go and spend time there, it needs to be a place that's uplifting, that's nice. I would say the same could be extended to department stores. I mean, I'm maybe speaking a little bit out of turn here, but I'm sure there are are some that are performing incredibly well and they're probably amazing destinations, amazing places to spend time. You know, actually, I think Galleries Lafayette in Paris, we spoke to their CEO earlier in the year and they were doing roaring trade, but it was about the experiences around it. It wasn't just about a a straight up retail transaction. And I think you you extend that to cities as well. I I know you spoke to Petra Marco. You wrote a piece for me for our Monocle Minute on Design newsletter and and I think she's been on the show as well this year talking about her new book, Meanwhile City. And that book is, while it's about temporary projects, if you flick through the pages, the quality of those temporary projects is outstanding. The thing that jumped out at me particularly were the parklets that Petra chose to feature in Meanwhile City. And you look at these things and they're temporary installations that are just slotting into a car bay on the street. I think 10 years ago, everyone was sort of rolling out parklets and they were cheap and they would fall apart and they they looked really shoddy and they were probably reflective of the temporary nature. Whereas these parklets that have been profiled in Meanwhile City are outstanding. They're beautiful. They look like they could be permanent. There's the expectation of quality. And I think we're seeing that reflected in both, you know, permanent structures, whether that's somebody's office, whether that's, you know, a department store, whether that's a parklet on the street, or again, coming back to Accra, whether that's, you know, beautiful hospitals for people in remote parts of West Africa. It it feels like it doesn't matter where you are, there's the expectation that people are going to deliver. It's about uh, designing and building with dignity for the place and the people and culture of where you are building as well. It's important that the built environment reflects communities more than anything else. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's also people will respond to that. People are always going to respond to authenticity. People are always going to respond to something that is, you know, or feels truly reflective of who they are or where they're from. So there is an element, and I guess that probably does come across in the quality of building in a manner that, yeah, is is reflective of the place. And, you know, there's also what's sensational is there's great sustainability arguments for that. There's, if again, if we come back to Kere and the the Pritzker and the work that he does for civic buildings across the, the globe, I know he's building a new institute in Senegal for a cultural organization. But it's all about working with the the local microclimate in the way that he builds. So there's proper airflow through the building, which means in turn that, you know, you lower your energy costs. But at the same time, the height that it's being constructed to is sensitive to the trees in the city. So it also isn't, you know, an imposition on the cityscape. So you, you kind of have these different levels of working with or building and and creating cities and and structures with a sense of place that have benefits on, yeah, a sustainability level, but also, you know, a level of being embraced by the local community. Monaco's Nick Manis there, our design editor. Thank you.
Well, that's all for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Make sure you keep an eye out for more urbanism stories in the latest issue of Monocle magazine. You can find us at good newsstands or, of course, why not put the perfect finish on your ear by becoming a subscriber. Just head over to monocle.com. Andrew Tuck will be back next week. Today's show was produced by myself, Carlotta Rebello, and by David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Noga Eres with End of the Road. Thank you for listening. City lovers.